What makes a great round of golf is your short game. And when it comes to putting, alignment may be the most important part of the equation. That's why Odyssey continues to set performance standards with the new triple track putters. Three distinct alignment lines are centered on every triple track putter head. That's the same visual technology that lands jets on aircraft carriers. You'll be amazed at how easy it is to line up so you can focus on making a great stroke. Get lined up with the new triple track putters at CallawayGolf.ca. Amid calls for sweeping police reform in the wake of the killing of George Floyd, some have been wondering what any changes would mean for community safety. How would a reformed police respond to gang violence? Why is it important that they do? And what needs to be done to steer people from the gang lifestyle? I'm Dave Breckenridge, and this is 10-3. Today, I'm joined by Jamil Giovanni, author of Why Young Men, The Dangerous Allure of Violent Movements and What We Can Do About It, to discuss how gangs contribute to the problem of over-policing, what can be done to address that problem, and why it's an important part of the current discussion around policing. Don't forget you can subscribe to this show on Apple, Google, Spotify, wherever you get your favorite podcasts. We'd love it if you could leave us a rating, a review, and tell your friends about us. So, Jamil, right now in North America, across the U.S., across Canada, people are talking more and more about the idea of massive police reform, changing the way that we enforce laws, changing the way that police deal with various communities, all of this in the wake of the killing of George Floyd at the hands of Minneapolis police officers. One piece that hasn't really been talked about in all of this debate is kind of on the other side of the thin blue line in terms of dealing with crime and policing, it's dealing with criminals. You have a piece you wrote for City Journal, the New York Post had picked it up. It talks about trying to deal with the gang issue. What role do gangs play in this whole debate? I always like to preface my comments by saying that bringing up the gang issue is not an effort to excuse or draw attention away from police violence. Mm -hmm. But I do think in order for us to honor the victims of police violence and take police brutality seriously, we have to discuss it in a realistic way. And that means putting it in the context of what else is happening in our society. So if we want to, for example, change the way policing works, I think we have to understand, well, what is the impetus for the current way that we have policing in our cities? So the reason why we have large police budgets, for instance, is because gangs make police a necessity, especially armed police a necessity. And gangs also mean that a lot of Black communities who are exposed disproportionately to gang violence are making calls to the police or are in situations where they must interact with the police more than the average person who they share a, a city with. And so the disproportionality in how police violence affects Black people is also rooted in the distribution of violent crime in the first place. And if we want to change policing, I think we have to bring the conversation about police violence and gang violence under the same umbrella. Mm -hmm. So one of the ways that this manifests itself, for instance, is when we talk about things like, well, we want more accountability for police officers. Okay, so we want, let's say, things like body cameras, or we want better training for police officers, or we want to put them in a position where they don't have to use deadly force or perhaps any lethal force of any kind as often as they do. Well, the way you get all of that done is you need to be able to invest in those sorts of measures and you cannot invest in those measures adequately if you continually have to put money into putting more officers 
on the force. And the reason why, and we've seen multiple examples of this in cities across North America, the reason why we continue investing in more officers is because gang violence increases and the public reasonably says, hey, we need cops to keep us safe. We can't have bad guys be the only ones who have guns. One of the things that you raise in your piece is that, at least in the U.S., as far as I know, that more white men in total are killed more often by police, statistically or proportionally speaking. It's more likely that a black man is going to be killed by a police officer than a white man. And you say that it's because police are under increasing pressure to deal with gang violence in the drug trade. Is it a concern, though, that people may simplify that and say, well, if they weren't policing black neighborhoods more often, we wouldn't have more people killed. But if we weren't dealing with the gang problem, we wouldn't be having to police black neighborhoods more often. I'm not concerned about the oversimplification, mainly because I think it's a truth, right? So there are a few truths there. One truth is that black people, black men mostly, disproportionately are being killed by police officers. The other truth is that black people, black men mostly, are disproportionately interacting with police officers. They're more likely to be stopped. They're more likely to be ticketed. They're more likely to speak with an officer on the street or be interviewed for an investigation. That kind of interaction is more likely. So if we want to say, look, we would like to live in a society where police killings and police brutality is being reduced, it seems like one of the ways to do that would be to reduce the amount of interactions that citizens are having with cops in the first place. Because as we've seen with all these examples, like there are these fairly, let's say, low-risk conflicts like a man, Brayshard Brooks in, in Atlanta, falling asleep in a drive through at Wendy's. And that low-scale interaction then wound up exploding into a violent interaction where he shot. Now, that example may have nothing to do with gang violence. I, I certainly don't want to make that assumption. But I think generally speaking, it would be valuable for us to say, look, if we want to reduce the interactions that Black communities are having with cops, maybe we could point a finger at the violent criminals who are bringing cops to Black communities because they're shooting their neighbors. And to me, it's like, just as I want the police to feel a responsibility to address their role in this violence, I also want the gangs who make police a necessary presence in a lot of Black communities, I want those gangs to feel a responsibility too. And I don't think there's anything wrong with asking people to share responsibility. Certainly if the argument is either or, like either we're talking about cops or we're talking about gangs, but we can't talk about them both, then that would be a mistake. And if anyone interprets what I'm saying is that, then I would apologize mm -hmm. because that's not my intent. But my intention is simply to say, hey, can we have an honest conversation about community safety and what is bringing police officers into Black neighborhoods in the first place, which is a minority of the Black population that is in being lured into violent crime. The one thing that sticks out for me in that is, you know, we are talking about an overwhelming majority of a community that is not involved in gang violence or the drug trade, and yet they get saddled with over-policing or the stigmatization at the hands of police that they may be involved in it. You hear stories about black men who are harassed by police because they, quote, fit a description. And then they get stopped, they get their ID taken, they get hassled, they get put in cuffs. And it just creates, A, a negative interaction with police, but it furthers this whole system of racial profiling and racism that even if you didn't deal with the gangs, if police had a different mindset in dealing with a community, you may not have all these situations, right? Oh, yes. And I completely agree with that. I mean, as it relates to profiling, as it relates to stereotyping, 
there's no excuse for that. And that's why I'm a proponent of ideas like body cameras, which increase the accountability of how police officers interact with citizens, which I think is really important. I'm also a big supporter of things like complaint processes, which document the uh, behavior of officers if they wind up stereotyping, profiling, abusing their authority, all of which is important. The question, though, comes back down to this, which is, what is the most common way that a Black community interacts with police officers? And the most common way is through low-income areas where you wind up with a higher concentration of Black families in many cities, and that's where you wind up with a lot of tension between cops and Black communities. And the tension is legitimate in the sense that, you know, I've lived in neighborhoods like that. It sucks when you walk home from the bus stop. And you feel like cops are following you because they think your neighborhood is full of criminals. Mm -hmm. I don't want people to experience that. But at the same time, part of why I experience those things in many cases is because there are guys shooting up my neighborhood. And I want those guys to feel like, hey, why are you putting my neighborhood in this position? Why are you putting me in a position where the cops come here so much? Why can't you take your responsibility in this and say, I'm going to not make this neighborhood violent so that my community doesn't have to deal with the police. And then we get to say to the police, hey, guys, we don't need you here as much. But for as long as there's going to be gangs, there's going to be violence, there's always going to be concerned mothers who have every reasonable right in the world to call the cops and say, I need more cops in my neighborhood because I'm afraid my son might get shot on his way home from school. Why do you suppose this isn't as discussed as much or as as prominently when you talk about trying to reform policing and make neighborhoods safer? In the wake of the killing of George Floyd, there's been a lot of, and I think rightfully so, there's been a lot of talk about how communities are policed and how police use force and whether police forces across North America are, are dealing with systemic racism. And all of these issues are very important to talk about, but there may be others out there, but your piece for City Journal seems to kind of stand alone. Like, why is this part of it not being talked about? It's a great question. I mean, part of it, I do believe, is a class issue. And what I mean by that is, I think if you are a Black person who grows up in a low-income neighborhood where you may be exposed to crime, you do have a different perspective on policing because you know, well, I need the police to help keep my community safe. But you at the same time also feel the tension of, wait, but when the police do show up, I also don't feel completely safe. And you wrestle with that tension when you're in that kind of environment, when you're in that kind of neighborhood. A lot of the people who speak you know, sort of professionally on these issues in the media, in politics, in academia, they don't live in a neighborhood like that. And they don't know what it's like when you see on the TV a shooting happened in, in your city and then you want to see what intersection that was because maybe your mom or your cousin lives there. Like a lot of them don't have that feeling. And that's just the way that sort of class shapes who gets to speak on these issues. So I think that's part of it. I wouldn't say that it describes every difference in perspectives, but I think that that's part of it. The other thing that I think is important too is there are a lot of people who just really want to seize on anti-police sentiment. I mean, they're just kind of lurking, waiting in the wings for when a tragic news story comes out, like the murder of George Floyd, and they seize on it as a way of making the police sort of the face of systemic racism in our society. And the truth is, like, I don't share that belief. And I think there are a lot of people who don't, but those people sometimes are afraid to speak up because it feels like in order to advance 
the interests of minority groups, sometimes you feel pressured to appear as, you know, one united front. But in my personal opinion, like I see great leaders from the black community in policing and I see them and I say, these are guys who work every day trying to change things. And so I have a sensitivity to wanting to make sure we don't paint cops with a broad brush and that we recognize part of the reason why cops are so easy to be targeted as the faces of systemic racism is because we don't focus on things like the education system or the child welfare system or poverty. Mm -hmm. And I think those are, in my view, more the foundational pieces for why we have racial inequality in our society. Now, when we talk about policing and police reform, there's been several weeks of discussion about defunding, divesting, abolishing the police. People point at places like Camden, New Jersey as a city that disbanded its whole police force and started over, but you don't see that as being the way out, right? And I I think you even point to Camden as, yes, they made sweeping changes, but it's not as though they're under police now or they're doing de-policing. What is notable for you out of the Camden example? Yeah, so Camden's an example where the communities there, the local leaders, the municipal leaders decided they wanted to get rid of the police department that they had built. And instead, now that city is policed by a county police department, which is just a bigger organization. Whether that's been good or not, I mean, there's evidence to suggest that that change was a good thing, but it certainly isn't an example of defunding the police. In fact, the county police department is bigger than the municipal one. And so the ratio of citizen to police officer is actually lower now. They're a more heavily policed city now because they've got a county police department. And that, I think, is an example of where I find the defund the police conversation to be a bit dishonest because it's also overlooking very practical examples of how defunding has worked in the past. So if you take Toronto, for instance, we had an effort led by the police chief in Toronto, Mark Saunders, to lower the police budget by $100 million. And there was a commitment from a number of people in the city government to achieve that shift, which would be, in effect, defunding the police by lowering the budget. The reason why that didn't work, though, is because this was in 2017. But in 2018 and 2019, we had record levels of shootings and the public basically said, hey, we need more cops, not less cops. There was no political will to defund the police because we had an uptick in gang violence. Mm -hmm. So to me, if you wanted to have a genuine conversation about defunding the police, the first step would be to say, how do we make the police a less necessary thing? How do we make fewer police officers a more reasonable request? And that is where starting with less violence is, is I think, a prerequisite to have that conversation. Now, how do we get to that point, though? Like, not long ago, you mentioned you're dealing with communities that are dealing with poverty, also dealing with a lack of access to quality education. You have a war on drugs. You have a system where Black and other people of color are stigmatized by the police and over-policed, in a sense. What do you address to kind of make some of these things go away? That's the most important question of all, which is how do we sort of shift the way inequality and disadvantage is currently structured in our society so that Black communities and Black families are not being exposed to all of these issues at such a higher rate than other groups in our society. You know, to me, that does mean, you know, significant changes to the way we do education. I mean, the unfortunate thing is that even though they're publicly funded, some schools are just objectively inferior to others. And those schools do have disproportionately 
poor students and disproportionately black and indigenous students. So to me, the education system is a really important equalizer or should be an important equalizer that it currently is not. The other thing that I think we need to think more about is economic development and how we make sure that in a highly prosperous country like Canada or a highly prosperous country like the United States, that we actually have economic development being distributed evenly enough that people are able to see opportunity in their society and able to build businesses, get jobs, be part of skilled trades, be part of unions. And that's just something that isn't happening as effectively as it needs to be. So those are the things that I think would make the biggest changes. And I would say governments pay a lot of lip service to that, but have not historically been especially effective at identifying the most effective ways of accomplishing those goals. Mm -hmm. And um, that's something I'm trying my best to learn how we break out of that cycle of saying the right things and then not following through. This is a quote from your column. Is there a step that we can take to reduce gang violence that's also an alternative to putting more cops in black communities? Yes, changing the culture that young black men in urban America are raised in. What do you mean by that? If you look at a lot of the cultural influences around young people, but especially, I think, around young black men, they are encouraging exactly the kind of violence that I think sets the tone for over-policing in the first place. You have billionaires like Jay-Z who've turned their lives around and are incredibly effective and yet sort of flaunt their unwillingness to repent for building an entire musical catalog that glorifies drug dealing and gangsters. You have record labels who say, uh, we have a responsibility to address systemic racism, which is in some ways a way of recognizing their power over our culture, mm -hmm. because they think if they choose different words, it will result in different realities. And yet they publish music over and over and over again that talks about black men shooting each other. And so to me, I look at it and say like, it's big business to push gangster culture, gangster subculture, gangster fairy tales to young people. And it's young black men who are in positions where those fairy tales are too real. And we act on those and we believe that that's part of our identity and we're cultured into thinking that that's acceptable behavior. And I recognize, of course, that, you know, as a community that experiences disproportionate inequality, crime is always going to be more tempting to people who don't have opportunity, who don't have money necessarily through legal means. Mm -hmm. But the reality is that poverty doesn't necessarily lead to gains. I mean, that's just, there's no clear correlation between those things. There's a reason why we uh, see gangs taking hold in the lives of disenfranchised and frustrated young men. And I think that culture plays a big part in that. So I wish all these people who say that, you know, their social media posts matter a lot when I suppose when it seems to wanting to change police behavior, I think it's probably more likely that their social media might influence young men, but they don't seem to want to gear their advocacy to that in that direction. I kind of get what you're saying here, but at the same time, you looked at the Columbine shooting two decades ago now, and there was a lot of talk at the time about how, you know, these kids were listening to Marilyn Manson and, you know, the music that they were listening to, uh, whether it was Marilyn Manson's music or other music kind of influenced them to go and shoot all those people at their school that, you know, we had a debate then saying, well, why should we hold artists accountable for expressing themselves or expressing their lived experience? You know, you have rap acts like NWA who put out a song in the late 80s called Fuck the Police and Pardon My Language audience that talked about dealing with some of the issues that black men are still dealing with today. Why hold the artists accountable because they're talking about the lives that they lived, even if it is, yes, a violent life? 
So there are a couple of things there. If we had a decade's worth of evidence that Marilyn Manson fans and Marilyn Manson's music have a, a connection to real-life violence, then I think it would be fair to say, hey, maybe there's a weird subculture around Marilyn Manson that we should take seriously. I don't think we have that evidence. But as it pertains to hip-hop, as it pertains to rap music, and I say this as a person who grew up uh, idolizing Tupac, like there is ample evidence. We've seen over and over again that young Black men in the hip-hop industry are being killed. They are being shot including in Canada, including in Toronto, my hometown. Mm -hmm. We are seeing evidence that young black men are, it's such a gross disproportionality being killed by gang violence. And then that is also the population that billionaire, big Hollywood business then wants to bring on board to sell that same activity because it's very compelling and exciting to large groups of people, not just young black men. But I mean, it's just a reality. They are actively recruiting from a population that's exposed to gang violence in order to turn them into pop cultural stars and then acting like they don't see a connection between the cultural products and the violence. So I think that's a part of it. But the other thing too, and this is what I, the point I was mostly trying to make with that section of the article was just to say, Hey guys, like if you believe your voice matters and a lot of Famous people and rich people have popped up out of the blue now saying that if they post a black square on Instagram or if on Twitter they, you know, ask for forgiveness for white privilege, they believe their voice matters. That's what they're saying. Mm -hmm. So if their voice matters, you don't get to pick and choose when it matters. It either matters because you have influence and therefore when you talk about gangs in a positive way, that also matters or it doesn't matter. But you can't say it matters to help with one type of activism. And then when I tell, ask you humbly, hey, can you help me with another type of activism? Oh, my voice doesn't matter on that issue. I don't believe that. And I think that pick and choosing is the kind of hypocrisy that I find really frustrating. We talk about some pretty big complex issues. It seems that the police reform movement seems to kind of have the greatest traction right now. Do you see it playing out where we see changes to policing and then we start looking at bigger issues or are you worried that kind of over time you get back to the position where leaders are just paying lip service to some of these kind of more complicated problems? Oh yes. You've described exactly what I'm worried about. As I said, you know, I I do think that if you experience vulnerability in our society to crime and violence, I think you have a different respect and appreciation for police and if you're fortunate enough to feel like you don't need them. And a lot of people who talk about the cops in this sort of defund or abolish the police movement, they talk about them like they don't need them. And I think that's that's pretty out of touch with how a lot of people experience life in our society. So if you're that out of touch, I don't think you're going to move from advocating for changes to policing to then understanding how you know, large swaths of the working class and low-income families are experiencing education or how are they experiencing the economy. I don't think if you're that out of touch on policing, you're going to understand the other issues very well either. So I do worry that the focus on police is not going to result in action on other issues. And, you know, I, I think it will result in some action on policing. Like, I think you will see that in Toronto, for example. But the thing is about this is that, you know, to, to get those actions like police reforms, it requires months and months, if not years and years of effort. And I hope that's part of the lesson that people learn on this is that if you want to make changes, you have to be working on this stuff when no one else is paying attention. So that way, in the moments when the world says, oh, I really care about this, you're ready to say, hey, and here's 
the solutions that I've been working on for years when no one, no one cared. I think that's a really important part of this change and that every change that comes on policing or comes on other issues, when people see it in the news cycle, I hope they, they realize it didn't just start when George Floyd died. It required a lot of people doing a lot of grunt work behind the scenes in order to make these things a reality. Well, it's definitely a fascinating topic, and I, I know it's not easy to come up with solutions to some of these issues. Uh, Jamil, thanks for your time. Thank you. Appreciate the opportunity to speak about this. 10.3 is produced by Carson Jarama, theme music by Bryce Hall. Thanks to my guest, Jamil Giovanni. He's the managing director of Road Home Research and Analysis, which is a nonprofit focused on ideas, policies, and programs that can improve the life outcomes of disadvantaged youth. More from him at roadhome.ca. I'm Dave Breckenridge. Thanks for listening. Mm-hmm.